0: Different cities have different nicknames. Toronto has had different ones over the time. Most recently, Toronto's called the Six. Uh, you can look into the big cities of the rest of North America. I don't know why, but for some reason, New York is called the Big Apple. Maybe afterwards, you can give me the uh, meaning behind that. Uh, Chicago is known as the Windy City because it's right on Lake Michigan. And I, I'm guessing it's because there's lots of wind that comes off of the lake. Chicago has a second nickname that's lesser well, lesser known, it's called the Second City. Uh, They don't call themselves the Second City because they think they're second best uh, or because they're second biggest. Chicago's nickname Second City comes from its history. Uh, In 1871, there was a massive fire that shred through Chicago. Thankfully, there weren't a lot of casualties there were a lot, but there could have been more. 300 people died, but over 100,000 people were homeless as a result of it. And massive miles just reduced to ashes while the flames engulfed buildings for three days. Chicago was called Second City because, in the ash heap of the ruin of that fire, the people banded together and built a new city. On top of the waste around them. In Isaiah 24, we see Isaiah proclaiming the Lord's judgment against all the earth. God's judgment against all the earth is so severe that all the cities are wasted and left desolate. People are crying out, death is everywhere, and sorrow is mounting up. In Isaiah 25, though, the prophet speaks of a day when God's wondrous works of old will finally come to fruition. And all the wasted cities will be gone, and the fortified cities that were built against God will be demolished, and God will set up his new city on the mountain in the place where he chose, on Jerusalem, in Mount Zion. God will rebuild that city, restore his name, restore his glory. And if you were listening carefully, you would hear that the language of Isaiah 25 reflects the vision of the apocalypse that John would see in Revelation 21, when Christ comes back and there is new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem and death is swallowed up and God's dwelling place is with his people again. And on that day, all those people who will be in that new city will sing a song. And that's the song of Isaiah 26, verse one to six. Christian, you have the hope that you will sing this song of the new city on that day. But while we wait for that day, we are so often surrounded by ruin and waste around us. Yet the hope of the song of the new city is that even though we are surrounded by waste around us, you have reason to rejoice today even though we are surrounded by waste and ruin of sin around us, you have reason to rejoice in God today. I want to be able to show us the reasons why. Isaiah 26, verse 1 to 6 provides three reasons why we can rejoice with the song of the new city even though we're surrounded by the waste of sin today what are those reasons the first one is found in verse 1 and 2 look at again with me of chapter 26 it says in that day this song will be sung in the land of judah we have a strong city he sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in the first reason that we can rejoice in the song of the new city today is that we have the hope of strong salvation. We can rejoice in the strong salvation that God has accomplished and is built in the new city. See, this is a a group of singers that are coming together. And when the singers see the new city that God is making, they see uh, the structure of that city. And the structure of that city they see is strong. They see stable. They see secure. And the stability, the strength of the new city is built with salvation. This would have been a great relief and a great hope and a great joy to the first Jews who heard this because time and time again, generation after generation, king after king, the nation of Israel was offered salvation by God, but because of their own unrighteousness and their own unfaithfulness, that salvation that would keep them secure and would rescue them from the waste of sin seemed to keep escaping them. Instead of turning to God and fully trusting in him and being true to his covenant, they were untrue to God in the wilderness after he redeemed them from Israel, in the promised land when he scattered the nations, but they still worshipped the nation's idols. When he gave them a king, but they still wanted to be like the nations. Time and time again, the salvation that God offered was inescapable or was it escaped them because of their own unrighteousness and faithfulness and they were not true to god's covenant and as a result of them trying to secure their own blessing by in their own security in their own terms by their own unrighteousness isaiah looked at god's judgment on everything they built and he said the wasted city is broken down desolation is left and the gates are battered to ruins but then to hear that a new city is coming that god will build where he will be true to his covenant of old that will be lasting and that will be eternal that is a great relief to the people of god that is a great hope because their salvation is secured not by their own works but finally and fully and completely and absolutely by the salvation that god has built they look at the walls and they see strength that gives them relief but then they don't just see walls they look at the where the walls come together and they see gates and this is a great hope walls provide stability gates provide accessibility walls provide fortification Gates provide invitation. And then these singers call out to all people who would listen, open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. And finally, God is being going to be true to show his blessing, not just to the children of Abraham, but to all the nations of the earth through his people on that mountain In that new city. But after trying again and again and again to offer salvation that escaped the people because of their own unrighteousness. How is God finally able to secure them an impenetrable salvation? Isaiah 25 verse 8 says in order to do this. God is going to have to wipe away the reproach of the sins of all the earth. That's how they can enter in. What enables the Lord to justly wipe away the reproach of a people who continually turn away from him? Well, Later in the prophet Isaiah's writing, Isaiah would speak of a promised servant who would come and who would do this. Who would take away their approach even on himself. And who in return would count them Righteous. So that they could enter in my faith. Isaiah fifty six fifty three speaks of this promised servant. It says of him, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, this servant. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. How? He shall bear their iniquities. This is Christ. This is the absolute, impenetrable, secure salvation that God once for all accomplished that can give them hope of a stable and strong salvation. The righteous one the servant who suffered for our salvation is jesus christ he was crushed on the cross he bore our grieves to the grave but he didn't stay there christ rose in power his new life is the proof that the guilt of our sin can be cleared that the shame of our sin can be cleansed and that by grace through faith The gates are open, the walls are secure, and we have a strong salvation. You have a strong salvation. The strength of God's salvation in whose new city is secure and girded up by grace. This this is what secures what the unfaithfulness and the unrighteousness of all of the nations of Israel, and all of what, all of our sin, kept causing uh, to be make us to escape from us, to grace, to be found in God's favor, by faith, to be found in Christ's righteousness, as if you've never sinned, and like you've flawlessly obeyed the covenant. That's what salvation has secured. This is what you can rejoice in, in the hope of the strength of the salvation of the new city. Your salvation is strong because it has been secured by Christ and it does not depend on you. The gates are open. Enter by faith and you will be secure. But even though we have a security in our salvation... Our lived experience in Christians often can make us feel like we lack an assurance of our salvation. Do you feel like that today? Like you, everything you hear scripture telling us, you can agree with intellectually, but your heart is still as numb as the chair that's under your bottom, as flat as the ground that you stand on. H- have you ever felt like your relationship with God has become more transactional and commercial than it is personal. You may know the security of your salvation, but you may be lacking that assurance of the strength of our salvation. Like a lot of people recently, our family has been going on a, a, a very big hide and seek game to try and find children's Tylenol and Advil. It's like out everywhere my wife finally found some at, at a shelf in Loblaws and Markham. I don't know if they're restacked. I'm sorry. I can't tell you. But when she got there, there was like her and another man converging on a big empty shelf with only two left. And they kind of looked at each other like it was a standoff. And finally, they actually were, were gracious and one each took one bottle. But then the shelves were empty again. But like we, we just need anything right now. Whoever can offer it. Uh, I'll, we'll take whatever. If it's Amazon, it's Amazon. But if it's shopper, it's shopper. If it's Rexall, it's Rexall. The vendor doesn't matter. Sorry, kids, the flavor doesn't matter. We just need like anything from anyone. When we lack an assurance of salvation, that can kind of, that's what a relationship with God can twist into. Like I know I'm forgiven now. And I know I have the hope of the new city then but all the things that God created my soul to be satisfied with, I'm not looking to from God. I'll just take from anywhere and anyone. See, the strength of your salvation is the promise that you can also enjoy the benefits of your salvation. Being a citizen of the city, new city means that you have privileges in the new city. But so many of us look for the benefits that we have in the new city through our salvation from other places. See, your soul longs to be accepted and dignified. Where do you go to find assurance of your value and your self-worth? We have a strong salvation. We can have assurance in the grace that all of our reproaches, all of those things that otherwise would shame us, have been wiped away by the hand of God. And in him, by what he says, and by the eyes that he looks at us, I can be dignified, and I can be secure, and I can be accepted, but I don't look to his eyes. I don't look to his word. We go to other cities. See, our soul is desperate for comfort in times of sorrow. But so many of us don't look to the the comfort of our high priest and the tender Nearness of our Heavenly Father when we're downcast and sad. We distract ourselves with enter- entertainment. We numb ourselves with overworking. We drink ourselves in a despair. But because we have a strong salvation, we can have assurance in the grace of divine comfort. You don't need to look for this in some other market, it's available in this new city because of the strength of your salvation. See, our our soul craves joy. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and he will satisfy the longings of our soul. You crave joy. Your father knows that. That's why in the new city, he is preparing a feast for you. But the prophet looks to us in other times and he says, why do you go to eat that which is not bread Come buy from me bread without price and drink living water that satisfies. Yet instead, we go to the black markets of this world to transact the to look for our joys in the greatest of luxuries and the most sensual of pleasures and in the best of reputation and forgetting that every generation before us has told us it's vanity of vanities. And we binge for joy but end up being spiritually bloated and starved when there is assurance of joy in the feast he is offering you in the new city. We have a strong city. And because of the benefits of our citizenship, all of these things that our soul looks for, we can find in him, the strength of our salvation is girded up in grace You are a citizen. You have that hope. And it is waiting for you fully, without blemish, when Christ returns. And you can enjoy a foretaste of it now. We have a security of our salvation. And your relationship with God doesn't need to be transactional. Find joy in him. Find comfort in him through the strength of our salvation. And because we're new citizens, we can also rejoice in the peace of that new city this is the second reason why we can rejoice in the hope with the song of the new city today even amongst the waste around us we have a strong salvation and we can have a perfect peace turn your eyes to the scriptures again with me look at verse three and verse four it says you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Perfect peace. That seems like a high and almost unattainable promise, doesn't it? Perfect peace? Let's try and wrap our minds around what Isaiah is trying to have us understand, what perfect peace is. Perfect peace is a good translation here in the ESV, but it's not a direct translation from the Hebrew phrase. The original Hebrew phrase isn't like perfect peace, it's more just like peace, peace. It's just two words duplicated. Now in the Hebrew language, if you're going to be able to show superlative and emphasis, one of the ways you can do that is by immediate repetition of the same word. In English, we can show superlative and exaggerations through just like um, suffixes at the end of the words, like it's not just strong, but it's stronger and it's the strongest, right? All right. But here, in order to show emphasis, exaggeration, in order to show the superlative and how great and awesome this piece is, he duplicates the word peace, peace, the most perfect kind of peace. What do you think that experience of perfect peace could look like if you actually could hold on to it? Well, the term that's duplicated here, peace, peace, in Hebrew is one that you may be familiar with, shalom, shalom. Shalom constitutes a kind of peace that's more than just peace of mind. That's often the way that we describe what the experience of peace is like. It is peace of mind, but it's more than peace of mind. It's a sense of completeness. It's a sense of wholeness because everything is as it should be, in every sphere of life. We are right with God. We are right in our own mind. We are right with all other people. We are right with this world around us. We are completely complete. We are wholly whole. And to be honest, experiencing this a complete completeness It's hard to grasp this right now. Like going, traveling into a country that speaks a new language and not knowing any of the dialect and kind of like getting what people are doing just by context and body language, but still feeling lost. Like what is, can we actually have perfect peace now? Well, there is a sense. Where we'll only be able to experience the fullness of this shalom, shalom, this perfect peace to be completely complete on that day. But we can model the culture of the new city that's coming in our city and our lives today. So there is a way that we can be completely complete, even if it's only in part. Like in philippians 4 it says having a peace that surpasses all understanding we can experience that but how well notice how or who stabilizes us with that perfect peace look at the text again verse 3 you keep him in perfect peace that perfect peace is from god he keeps in it you cannot be manufactured by yourselves god hosts the feast God removes the veil of death. God wipes away every tear from our eyes. God removes the reproach. God tears down the enemy city. God keeps us completely complete. But in order to experience this complete completeness, we need to cooperate with him. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. That we must have a dependent attitude. Trust that trains our minds in the midst of the chaos and the waste, of waste and ruin around us to focus on God. And we can trust in him because God is an everlasting rock. And because he is an everlasting rock, we can trust in him forever. But it's hard. Maybe I'm the only one. But it's hard to trust in God when the first quake comes, and it's hard to trust in God, knowing that there might be aftershocks. It can be so agonizing to actually worship God too, when we're surrounded by chaos, when everything keeps shaking. Can you remember a time in your life when you got hit with just a huge earthquake that just rocked your life. I remember a few times in my family's life. I remember after my wife uh, finished teacher's college, and she was waiting for a job and looking for a job, and it was hard, just not knowing, trying as best we can, doing everything that relied on us, but just, just like, okay, I guess all I can do is nanny right now. I remember a couple years ago, we just like being utterly shooken on Christmas Eve and we're all just sitting down on our couch and then all of a sudden we need to make a 911 call because our son is not doing well. I remember a time when people that we trusted like family, it seemed like overnight immediately turned on us as enemies. And it seems in those times when the initial quake hits, just like how can I have peace when I'm just frantic. And how can I have peace knowing that there's probably gonna be aftershocks and I don't know when they're going to come? I think the experience of training ourselves or the practice to train ourselves, to trust in God, to be ready when the quake comes is best described by Psalm 46. Psalm 46, at the end of the psalm, there was a voice that calls out from God that says, be still and know that I am God. But it's a voice that comes out when the psalmist sees the earth giving way, the mountains moved into the heart of the sea, nations raging, kingdoms tottering, instability everywhere. How in that can I listen to a voice that says, be still? Well, at the same time, seeing all this chaos around him, the psalmist knows that God is an everlasting rock. He trusts that God is a refuge and strength. He trusts that God is very present in times of trouble. He trusts that God is with with them. So believing this, when the quake comes in the midst of the wake and the quaking chaos, when he hears that voice, be still, he knows already God is a rock. And he can listen obediently because he knows that God is God. So many of us struggle to trust in God when the quake comes. You need to learn to trust in God like Noah. You're too late if you're building the ark when the skies are black. The trust comes when the clouds are clear and the sun is shining. But I know even in that time, I'm not stable in my own strength. Even in that time, I need the firm foundation of Christ and his word. And it's that person, when the clouds are clear and the sky is shining, who can respond like Psalm 112 that says he is not afraid of bad news His heart is firm, trusting the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. The hope of that new city, that when God wipes away all death and all sorrow and we will be completely complete, we can experience that now, in part, if we train ourselves to trust in him. Because he is an everlasting rock. And he will not be moved. But while we wait for that day, some of us feel acutely like things around us aren't just shaking, but people are shaking us. Like the waste isn't just around us, but other people are laying us to wake. We see specifically, acutely, the way that we are wrongfully being mistreated. And in that time, it's so hard to worship. It's so hard to trust. It's so hard to have hope because there's so much wrong. But even for this person who's being unjustly wronged, the song of the new city gives us reason to rejoice. We can rejoice in the salvation of the new city. We can rejoice in the perfect peace of that new city. And we can rejoice in the true justice of that new city. Look what God will do, verse 5 and verse 6. It says, for he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low low to the ground casts it to the dust the foot tramples on it the feet of the poor the steps of the city the song envisions a time that there will be a new city that is set up and it will be the glory of all the nations it recognizes that there are other cities in the past that the people of God tried to build and they will be laid waste and there are other cities that the enemies of God built specifically to stand up and make war with God and his people And all those people who wronged and mistreated God's people, they will be laid low. In mind here, God specifically has the city and the nation of Moab. You can see that in verse 10. Who was Moab? Well, when God was leading the family of Abraham, that... came the great nation of Israel. When he was leading them through the wilderness, you'll remember a story. A king named Balak saw the vast, uh, immense nation that was ahead of him and was afraid that he would be overtaken. And he wanted to curse these people. So Balak hired a pagan witch doctor, I don't even, I don't know what else to call him, named Balaam, kind of weird, Balak, Balaam, they're not related, but Balak hired Balaam to put a curse on the people of God. Balak was the king of Moab. And God didn't allow Balaam to curse his people because God says that anyone who curses me, I will curse, but anyone who blesses my people, I will bless. So God thwarted the king of Moab's plans, but God took that uh, attempt to curse his people very seriously so much so that in the deuteronomy the law of deuteronomy there's a law in deuteronomy 23 that forbids any Moabite from ever entering into the assembly of God's people there is this like everlasting punishment for this wicked enemy nation because of the mistreatment that they did against God's people so the lofty here in view and context is Moab but Moab Symbolically represents any nation or any people with a pompous Arab pride who think that they can get away with mistreating the name of God and the people of God. Now, Moab was thwarted in the wilderness wilderness by God, but throughout time, wicked people have succeeded in their plans to blaspheme God and to hurt God's people. And often it can feel like they get away with it. And maybe you're feeling that keenly today. Or maybe you felt that keenly in the past. Our hope is that on that day, God will execute justice and those who are mistreated will triumph over their persecutors with God. But that day's not here yet. And in these days, the message of our faith and the ethics of our faith are increasingly becoming an object of ridicule. You see it. You feel it. We see it in our workplaces, how hard it is to be able to stand on biblical values when there's active agendas for progressive values. You see it in your schools where the peer pressure towards students is pointed completely the opposite direction of a biblical morality. And the pressure against Christians is just a compromise. And when we don't, the ridicule against Christians is strong. You feel it, you see it. It's natural for us to want justice. We see the wrong, we want it to be made right. But church, we need, we need to caution ourselves. When it seems like other people are getting away with what's clearly wrong, we can be tempted towards anger. Anger itself is not wrong. The Lord is angered by sin. Anger is wrong when it's unrighteous. Unrighteous anger that is not submitted under the sovereignty of God. Unrighteous anger that brews internally wanting to be able to avenge yourself. Unrighteous anger vents externally thinking that you are the one that's going to make the wrong and lay them low when it's God who will do so on that day. that day holds a promise for those of us who have been mistreated the promise is of justice but now the duty is to wait remember what scripture says vengeance is my people's no vengeance is mine says the lord i will repay We need to have the attitude of trust like Abraham. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? We need to be obedient as disciples of Jesus who told us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. We need to wait. And in the waiting, it's hard. So like Jesus, we need to go to the garden. We need to get on our ease. We need to wrestle with God in prayer, submitting Our anger for what has truly been wrong done to us needs to wrestle with God in prayer till you get to the point where you recognize his sovereignty, his true justice, and you're ready to say, not my will, but yours be done. In that place of submission, that's where your high priest meets you with grace and mercy. That's where your brother meets you with comfort. That's where You'll be able to agree with first Peter saying it's a it's only for a little while and I'm grieved by various trials but it will result in the praise and the honor and glory of Christ Jesus and then you can take hope on that day that everything will be revealed before the father and he will make all things right and now in this day you don't need to be soiled by anger you can pour out praise while you wait. Even though we're surrounded by the waste of sin, we can rejoice today with the song of the new city. Isaiah 26, this song shows us the reasons we have strong salvation, we have perfect peace, and we have true justice. Those are the reasons, but what's the experience like? because the waste is everywhere. The desolation is so vast. What is it like if I believe these things, if I held fast to these things, what would it actually look like to rejoice with the song of the new city when I'm in the wasted city today? The call to rejoice today is not a kind of worship that's marked by naive, blissful ignorance. It's not some grounds to pretend like you're some stoic that skeptically avoids all negative emotions, it, it's not some uh, response like you're uh, you're at some uh, conference and the lights are bright and the music is loud and you're caught up in some vibe. We're still surrounded by the waste of sin. Rejoicing in the song of the new city can shape us to a kind of balanced worship to be able to sing and rejoice with calloused knees through sleepless nights with puffy eyes and wet cheeks because though I'm weighed down in sin hope is keeping me afloat that day is coming We will sing this song. And while we wait, we can rejoice today. Let's pray now.